0: Good morning, Risen King Church. Please open with me to Genesis chapter 14. Though you might want to put a marker over in Hebrews chapter 7-ish, anywhere around there, because we're going to be in a lot of Scripture this morning. Um, sort of two halves, you'll see as the sermon unfolds. First half, focused more Genesis 14, and then a lot in Hebrews. So I hope you have your copy of God's Word um, we're going to be in it. This is going to be a, a lot of scripture. I think we could pretty much do a series on uh, Melchizedek and Jesus pretty much as long as we did on the church. Uh, I loved that sermon, the summer series. I hope you did too. And I've enjoyed seeing how, uh, really, the connections of Genesis, right, as the beginnings of the building of what would be fulfilled in Christ and then lived in us. And I loved how last week Peter talked about World history intersecting with redemptive history and how that intersects with our history. right? All of these coming together as we get to, to read God's word and come into God's word as God confronts us. And it's beautiful, or as my British friend would say, brilliant to see how God weaves his story in such a way that we get to watch characters in scripture be confronted with God's truth and fail or overcome and grow and change as they're confronted with God's promises. And what a journey Genesis gives us to get to watch this, to watch God confront with his life changing truth. We see that often there are life changing moments for the biblical characters. And that's very real for us. If we think about our lives, often there are life changing moments where we are confronted where we are given almost an "a-haul" type of moment that we know that that this is is life impacting it'll never be the same and i remember in the 2000s early 2000s as laura and i were moving towards marriage i was confronted with the centrality of the glory of god over all things and i didn't like that at first i wrestled with that because i was so me centered Confronted with a God-centered view of the world where God's passion for his glory. And I wrestled with Jonathan Edwards in that that book he wrote, uh, The End for Which God Created the World. And I was ripped from my me-centered, man-centered worldview into the unfathomable wealth of God's glory at the center of all things. I thought, how have I missed this? 4 years of bible college right a whole christian for how many years and how have i lived without this reality i wonder how many of you can think of things like that right truths that are that impacting where you're like how have i not known this how have i not lived in this reality i think today as we look really are confronted with this great priesthood it is one of those truths the high priesthood of jesus that should be either an aha moment or a how-have-I-not-lived-in-this-reality moment. Because it is that life-impacting. I've loved being saturated in these truths this week. The reality is that as a people, we we tend towards independent and self-sufficient. It's within us as starkly as it's in the heart of a child that says, I can do it myself do it myself, right? We have a terrible, terrible disease of spiritual stubbornness. Does anybody else have that, afflicted with that sin disease, where we exalt our own thoughts, our own perspectives? After all, we see clearly, right? We see most clearly. We battle sin alone, internally or often only dealing with surface struggles, Or we think to ourselves, oh, there's nobody who could understand anyway. Or we think to ourselves, if I were to bring this thing out, what would people think? And We just remain stubborn in our battles, in our hurts, in our disappointments, in our relational strains. Stubborn. We lower our heads and we just try to push through life. Work life, family life family, big family gathering life. But there's a reality that lies before us that offers great hope, more comfort than we can find in ourselves. Because the great truth is that no matter how hard I try, I can't do it myself. And you can't either. And it's always been that way for all of time since that moment in the garden. And that's why God has given us a great royal high priest, King Jesus, whom we want to behold together this morning. We're going to journey there through an unexpected character that we met last week, this Melchizedek. Or in Uganda, in Uganda they say Um It's quite more fun to say it that way. I'm tempted to use that pronunciation the entire time this morning. Um, I won't. Maybe occasionally I'll slip it in uh, because I do hear Melchizedeki. it's great, Uh, Melchizedek. And as we see our great high priest Jesus together, let's just pray as we come into the text this morning. Lord God, as a people, uh, we are stubborn. Our sinful nature is stubborn. Our own pride holds us in bondage. And yet we know deep down we can't do it ourselves. We can't do anything ourselves. We judge wrongly. Lord, we can't defeat our own sin. We can't stop bitterness or frustrations or anger from ruling us. We don't have that power in ourselves. We are not a self-sufficient people. We are a needy people. I often am not aware of how great and desperate my need is. Lord, I want to see how desperate it is. I want to see how you alone can meet that need and how you have gloriously met it and you will continue to meet it. We want to behold you, Lord Jesus. Give us eyes to see you today as our great high priest. Lord, you know the needs of each heart here. Would you speak into those needs by your spirit, through your word, for the glory of your name we pray. Amen. Amen. You know, when we speak about Jesus as our high priest, often there is a bit of a disconnect, right? Because we do not live in a culture of priesthood. Um, In Uganda over all the years, you know, I, I didn't recognize the priesthood that was there, though culturally there are priests. They're just called witch doctors, right? They stand as intermediaries between the spirits and people. And they can tell people what the spirits demand. So bring this chicken, bring these goats. Mostly it's bring me this money. Um, and then this will, is what I will do for you. And you will find uh, freedom or wealth or a hundred other promises that cannot be delivered. So when you, in, in a Ugandan context, it's, it's a little bit easier to, to recognize, at least to translate the concept of a high priest and the need for a true high priest. In America, we tend to, at least as Christians here, we tend to think about priesthood in the context of the mosaic priesthood right and that was just a a long 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 time ago it's not something that we deal with on a daily basis but if we think about it the concept's still there for us right like i grew up thinking at the church where i attended the body i was a part of that the pastor that was the real man of god you know and if I knew the pastor was praying for me, man, that was definitely better than a normal person's prayer, right? <laughs> because you know, at least he's a little bit closer to God, okay? Um, luckily, uh, that we, we know here that that, that that is not right, right? But I, I, I assume many of us have had that kind of perspective, you know, like at, at least this person, and we want to exalt a person above, and yet... Um, as we come before God, we are all right here, a needy people together. Um, but in us, there is a sense, right? Yeah, in Scripture, right, that sense, uh, I think, is bound right into the heart of people. And I think that's, there's a reason why we see from the earliest days that priests come on the scene. And we don't expect it, because you know, Ab- or Noah, he offers sacrifice directly to God, right? There's not a priest, he's offering when we get to Abram, he's building altars and he's offering to God. And yet at some point, there's something that changes, right? Because at Babel, as, as the nations uh, are scattered, as languages separate, uh, as the knowledge of God is, is a bit removed and as people groups take their language, name of God, right? So for the, the Baganda, it's, it's uh, Katonda. For, for Canaanites, maybe it's L. Philistines, Dagon, and as the name of God is localized, the gods are localized, and our God is against your God, and when we fight, the stronger God wins, right? And so this kind of, how do we relate to this God? And we find intermediaries coming on the scene, right? A priest that can stand between the people and the gods or the spirits, like the witch doctors, right, and tell people, this is what God requires, this is what God demands, And in Scripture, the first priest that we find isn't like any of those priests, mediating in a fallen cultural worldview from really false gods as the knowledge of God sort of gets farther and farther away. This is a priest that kind of shocks us because we come into Genesis 14 and we learn that this Melchizedek is a priest of the Most High God. Wow. Wow. Let's just read Genesis 14 again so that it's fresh in our minds. Scripture says in Genesis 14, 17, after Abram's return from the defeat of, uh, Peter, your pronunciation was great, um, uh, Cheder Lamer, was that? Chedor Lamer. And the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shava, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed him, Abram, and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And then the narrative goes on to the king of Sodom. So who was Melchizedek? Who was he? Well, I mean, the text gives us a basic sketch, right? We know that he was a king. It says that he was the king of Salem. And as Peter mentioned last week, Salem, as we see through history develop, will become known as Jerusalem, All right, Jerusalem. And so this is a real city. And Jerusalem w- was a very uh, difficult city to capture, right? It's a stronghold. Um, it kind of makes sense maybe while the kings uh, that came into the land down in the valley, they left that place alone. Um, that, that wasn't a battle for them. And yet it would make sense why Melchizedek, a king over a people, would come out. I mean, this guy just defeated our enemies, right? They're not going to come back and mess with us. So uh, it makes sense. This king is going to come out and meet this guy who just delivered all of our people safe and sound and defeated that enemy. But that's actually not why Melchizedek comes out, right? So yes, he's a king over a people, but he is a king and priest. And we again see that. Verse 18 stated very clearly, Moses wants us to know this, that Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high and so here is a king ruling a people in the name of God most high not a localized god this is the god over heaven and earth the text tells us because that's actually as he as he blesses the as he speaks the blessing over abram that's actually how he qualifies Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. Melchizedek stands out already as different from everyone else. And we know that this is the same God of Abram that's called Abram. Remember, Abram comes from a family of, do you remember? Idol worshipers. Like, Abram comes from a family that's calling on the names of other gods. That's not Melchizedek. He's priest of God Most High. He calls on the name of God Most High who possesses heaven and earth. God reveals these things to Abram, calls him out, calls him into faith, gives him promises. And this is the same God. We know that because actually Abram tells the king of Sodom in the same language of verse 22, I've lifted my hand to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And so Moses wants us to know beyond a shadow of a doubt, Melchizedek's God is the God of Abram. And so here's Melchizedek, ruling a people, as king, representing God, God Most High. And he's representing God Most High to these people. We don't know anything about it. We don't know any details. But this is who he was, and this is what he did. He stood between the people and God, and God and the people. He is a royal priest of God. What a great picture. That's awesome. And so he comes out. If you remember, this isn't the first royal priest we've seen. Because do you remember in the garden, God made Adam as a royal son of God in his image. And that picture of Adam over the garden was a priestly picture. Adam is the first king priest or royal priest. And then we see later Melchizedek coming really as an image, in a sense, of Adam as a king-priest over a people. If you remember the chronologies, it's possible that Abram's life actually overlapped with Noah's sons. So if you do the chronology, it's very possible, right? So, so again, th- there, there's access to the true story. There's access to the, the true knowledge of the true God, knowledge that would go back to the Garden. And so as we, as we are confronted with Melchizedek, we find that he is a worshiper of the true God, Abram's God, and we find that he comes out and he recognizes something very unique about Abram. And What does he recognize? Look at verse 19. Again, Melchizedek blessed Abram and said, blessed be Abram by God most high. Where did we find that promise of blessing? Do you remember? It was in Genesis 12 when God promised Abram that he would make him a great nation, that he would bless him and make his name great and make him a blessing. Ultimately, all the families of the earth that have just been scattered at Babel, they're going to be blessed through Abram. Melchizedek doesn't come out to try to be like the king of Sodom and to try to get up, you know, get favor with this guy. Melchizedek's not coming out saying, hey, thank you that, that you were the deliverer. That's not it. Melchizedek's God's priest. Like, Melchizedek stands knowing that God was his protector, right? Why does he come? Because he recognizes that Abram carries the blessing of Yahweh. Remember where that was first found? Remember Genesis 3.15? When the promise was made to the woman that an offspring would come who would crush the serpent's head. you remember that? That first gospel proclamation and that hope through every offspring and every generation. And you get to Noah and he has three sons. And which son will carry that blessing? It's going to be through who? It's Shem. Shem's going to carry the blessing. And Abram is from whose line? Shem. And Melchizedek is looking, I think, again, the text, this is where I want to be careful, right? The text isn't clear here, so I want to step out and say, okay, what's going on? How does Melchizedek know that Abram is the blessed of God, right? And I'm convinced Melchizedek knew the promise, and he knew the offspring would come through the line, and he knew that it would be through the woman, and he sees and knows Abram is the blessed of God, and he comes out. And he proclaims blessing over Abram. That's awesome. And what does Abram do to Melchizedek? Because Abram also recognizes something. Just as Melchizedek recognizes something in Abram, Abram's going to recognize something in Melchizedek. Because Abram listens and receives this blessing. And he responds by what? Verse 20 the end of verse 20 says he gave him a tenth of everything. Abram recognized that there is a greater king and priest who is worthy of offering to Yahweh or to God. Abram's not offering it to Melchizedek as a a kickback or as a side thing or, or as a bribe or anything else. He is giving to him a tenth of everything because he's offering back to Yahweh out of what God has given to him, to this king and priest. And so Melchizedek responds in faith in God by giving to Melchizedek. It's amazing that Hebrews chapter 7 says says this, Uh, Listen to verse 4 of Hebrews 7. It says, See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And then in verse 7, listen to the way the author of Hebrews says this. It is beyond dispute that the inferior, Abram, is blessed by the superior. Melchizedek Who's the superior? Shouldn't it be Abram? Who's the superior? It's Melchizedek, and the superior blesses the inferior. Now, is Abram I mean, shouldn't Abram be the better, right? shouldn't we want to kind of get defensive for Abram, right? It's like, no. Uh, Abram was a sinful idol worshipper whom God called and who God gave promises and blessing through. And that is great. And Father Abraham is worthy of honor. We're going to see this life, but he is inferior. He carries the promise and that is awesome, the promise of God's blessing. But there is one who is greater and he is the king and priest, Melchizedek. Now, was he Jesus? I once heard someone say that Melchizedek is Christ because Hebrews uh, actually goes on to say in verse 3, actually, let me, let me flip over there so that I am make sure I had it marked myself. Hebrews 7. Let's actually start in verse 2. To him, to Melchizedek, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. Then he's also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. Okay, quick note here as we think about who was Melchizedek. Was he Jesus or was he a man who was a king and priest? I mean, the obvious answer is he was a man, right? We're going to see how that gets a little confusing, but... How is he king of righteousness? How can Melchizedek be called righteous? Is it because he was a good person? Is it because he was a good king priest? How is anyone righteous ever? It's through Christ. It's through faith in the promise of the coming one who is Christ. In the Old Testament, salvation is through faith in the coming one, the fulfillment of promise. For us, it's looking back on that fulfillment. It's always faith. Both directions, and that's why I think it's it's beautiful to see that Melchizedek knew the promise, he believed the promise, and he recognized Abram as the as as the carrier of that promise. So he is righteous, and he lives righteously, right before God and before people, and he is king of peace. And what a picture that is. Verse three, though, is a little bit uh, head scratching. It says he Melchizedek is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. Okay, if we stop right there, we're like, wait a minute, this guy didn't have parents? He wasn't born? He didn't die? I mean, this has to be Jesus. And then we're like, well, wait a minute. Jesus had a father, didn't he? And Jesus had a father from eternity. And actually, don't the Gospels record a pretty clear genealogy? Answer is yes. So we're like, okay, something else is going on here uh, in in Hebrews chapter 7. What is it talking about? Um, Look at the, the rest of the verse. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. That's the key statement. Resembling the Son of God. Is Melchizedek the Son of God? No. All right? We don't know who he was. There's an early tradition that he was actually Shem. I thought that was interesting. I don't know, um, right? But, but we don't know who he was, but it's resembling the Son of God. Now, if somebody says, Malachi, you really resemble your papa, right? Does that make you me? Are you me? No. No, you're a better looking me, right? Um, you, you resemble me. Uh, the, the, Melchizedek is resembling the Son of God. He is giving us a picture of the Son of God. And, and here's how the fulfill, he continues a priest forever. It's not in any other way. It's the fact that Melchizedek is unexpected, unexpected, unlooked for. He seems to come out of nowhere. And he has a very clear purpose as king and priest. And it's almost as if the guy has just continued as priest. We don't know what happened. He has a unique priesthood. And this is a, a picture or an image. It's not literal. We're not meant to read it literal. Right? And so this is where we talk about this concept that's called typology. And I, I don't like to typically introduce uh, big words or, or something that would bring in more confusion. But for this, it's really important. So one, one biblical author actually defined typology this way. And I think this is at least helpful. It says, typology is the God-ordained author-intended historical cor- correspondence and escalation, okay, it's, it's growing and building, insignificance between people, events, and institutions across the Bible's redemptive histor- historical story, covenantal context. Now, this is a bit scholarly, right? What's he talking about? So, for example, if we talk about uh, the Passover and the Exodus, Exodus imagery just permeates the rest of Scripture until you get to the prophets and they're actually talking about a new Exodus. And you have to understand the first Exodus to understand how that's building towards a greater Exodus, that Jesus will lead us, his people, out of true bondage to true slavery, okay? So there's a a building and an escalation that gets to the cross, all right? And it's the same with Melchizedek's priesthood. And this is something that, that the biblical authors themselves are going to recognize. They're going to see this, and they're going to see it building. And it's, it's God-ordained, right? It's not, it's not creative imagination, right? It's not like, you know, I think that the, the, the tent pegs of the tabernacle, they're actually correspond to, right? It's not creating something out of your imagination. It's something that is clearly built and revealed as you walk through Scripture, And that's the beauty of typology, ultimately leading to Christ and fulfillment in him and the the truth of the gospel. We're going to see that David will, in a sense, use typology when we go to Psalm 110. So turn there with me. Psalm 110, verse 1, David writes, the Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, and that's Messiah, uh, ultimately the Messiah language there. We'll see this quoted in the New Testament. Uh, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Okay, so... Psalm 110, that's verse 2. This is royal messianic language, right? The Messiah is going to rule. Verse 3, your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change His mind. You, Messiah, are a priest forever after the order of of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand he will shatter kings on the day of his wrath and you walk through the rest of the psalm. David is looking back on Genesis 14. And he's recognizing by God's spirit that Melchizedek has a unique priesthood that is different, right? It's a priesthood that precedes the Levitical priesthood that will come through the Mosaic law. It is a greater priesthood. Just as Melchizedek is greater than Abram in that sense. There is something greater that's coming. And David recognizes by God's Spirit that the Messiah who will rule as king will also be granted a priesthood not after the order of Levi, not after the Mosaic covenant, but after the order of Melchizedek. That will be the order there's something greater that was prepared even before the giving of the law. Now go back to Hebrews chapter 7. I am going to read from verse 11. Because the author of Hebrews is going to look back on David who's looking back on Moses. All right? You see how this is building? Author of Hebrews looking back on David and Moses, but he sees Jesus, and he says in Hebrews 7 verse 11, now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? rather than one named after the order of Aaron, right? Shouldn't, shouldn't the Messiah have been the order of Aaron? Look at verse 12. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe, From which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord Jesus was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek. It's a likeness. It's an imaging. Who has become a priest... Not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, Jesus, you are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. On the one hand, a former commandment is set aside. That's the commandment for priests to come from the offspring of Aaron because of its weakness and its uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. A better covenant, verse 22. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Brothers and sisters, Jesus did not have to fulfill a physical genealogy to become high priest. Right? In fact, by introducing a new covenant with a new priesthood, it was necessary to have a change in law. That is why we function under the law of Christ, not under the law of Moses. Not just because Jesus fulfilled the law, but because his priesthood required a change in the law. In fact, to tie oneself back to the Mosaic law, to try to live under it, is to spurn Christ's law and ultimately reject His greater priesthood. His priesthood demanded it. The law of Christ rules His people. And it's this greater priesthood of Jesus that the author of Hebrews is going to labor to present. Greater than Moses, greater than all things that the Old Covenant pointed to as a shadow Fulfilling and transforming. And he spreads it out over six chapters. And again, we don't have six hours to go through six chapters. But I want to give you this. I want to walk through a few things as we think about this reality. Because Melchizedek, as he meets Abram, is really imaging the one who would come to fulfill what he was picturing. Because Jesus will come as king and priest. The true royal king priest. We could say our, this gathered body, risen king priest, right? Um, now we can't change our sign, but, that, that, but that's who he is. And, and, and often we have a concept of Jesus as king, and we have to have it because he rules us. But do you live with a concept of Jesus as priest, as your high priest, you live in that reality so how is Jesus the great royal high priest how first in offering the greater sacrifice all right listen to these truths uh, from Hebrews chapter 2 verse 17 so we're sticking in Hebrews we're just going to move around a little bit Hebrews 2 17 says therefore he Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. All right, so Jesus had to be made like us in every way so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest. First, by becoming a propitiation for sin. And so Jesus is a high priest unlike any priest who's ever lived, right? Like high priests could come. They could offer sacrifices on behalf of others. What priest offers themselves? And if they had, it wouldn't have been accepted. Jesus is the only high priest who is able to offer himself as the sacrifice, because he didn't sin when tempted, because he lived fully under the law of God. He fulfilled it perfectly on our behalf, and he bears the wrath of God. That's how he's the propitiation. He's the wrath bearer. He takes it upon himself on the cross. That's how by faith and repentance and trust in his sacrifice, we get to hear those beautiful words You are forgiven. You are loved. And you are now family. If you remember our series that we walked through. Beautiful. Part of his bride. He alone can do that. Because he conquered death. And he conquered sin. And he conquered Satan. And he lives today as an eternal high priest. And that's how he can help us you catch that there in verse 18? Because he suffered when tempted, he is able to help. I wonder, what points in your life would you say, I know through this situation, Jesus helped. I know God helped me. And I'm not talking about helped you find a parking place closer to the door, right? And, and he does do that. Like I'm not, I, I know people, they, it's amazing. It's just <laughs> whatever they go, there's a, a spot opens up. Okay, praise God. All right, but I'm talking about the kind of help that enters in, in your desperate need and you recognize he is helping you, right? Because that's, that's who he is and that's what he does it, it, as our great and royal high priest, because he himself was perfected through suffering. He helps us in our suffering. And that's the second thing that we see. Listen to chapter 5, verses 7 through 10. Hebrews 5, verse 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications. Okay, that's a funny word. I don't think most kids in here know supplication. I once heard it it uh, uh, explained this way. The transferring of your burden to another, right? He's supplicating, all right? He's praying and supplicating. He's before God with loud cries and tears. That was Jesus. To Him who was able to save Him from death. And He was heard because of His reverence. Although He was a son, He learned obedience through what He suffered and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Jesus, king, priest, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Okay, there it is again. The author of Hebrews is going to use this over and over again. All right, Jesus was perfected through suffering. How? Wasn't he perfect? Did he have sin? No. He was perfected in his suffering that he would become a faithful high priest. Jesus was perfected as high priest to be the perfect, the only perfect high priest. In his own suffering he cried out to God with loud cries and tears. You know, do you do you, do you feel comforted when you pour out your your pains and your heartache and somebody's just looking at you stoically, you know? Or maybe they're distracted scrolling their phone. Do you ever, you know, you're, do you feel like that person really gets you, right? And the answer is no. Um, that's not Jesus, right? Like Jesus gets it. He is moved by suffering and by pain. And we see that, and that's one of my favorite pictures at, at the tomb at, with Lazarus. Jesus moved to tears, even though he knew what he was going to do <laughs> for the glory of God, and he weeps. Right, He enters in and he weeps with his people. And the reality of suffering and death. What a high priest. The truth is no one can feel exactly what you are feeling. No one. No one has passed through exactly what you've passed through. And don't let any... You know, how many of you have ever heard somebody say, I know exactly what you're going through. And you're like, no you don't. You, You don't. And we're trying to give comfort, but it fails because you don't know exactly. Now, I... I can relate maybe this way, but typically that's not the most helpful thing to say in the moment, right? Relate, enter in, and lead them to the one who can relate, because there's only one who can relate to our suffering and to the suffering of all people, and that is the perfect high priest named Jesus. I remember someone very close to me was going through a very difficult divorce a lot of pain, a lot of brokenness, and I sat with her, um, man, and I didn't know what to say. And it's just like, you know, if you don't know what to do, it's like, well, just give him Jesus, right? As if that's, you know, that actually is the right answer. Um, I remember asking this person, can I just pray with you? And she was like, okay. And I'm like, Lord, I don't know what she feels, I don't know what she's going through. But I know that you know. You know exactly how she feels. You know what it means, what it feels like to be betrayed, you know what it means to be abused, you know what it means, right? And I just prayed, Lord, would you meet her in that place? Because she needs you to enter in, right? With help. I can't give it. Okay, amen. All right, all right. She's crying, and I'm crying. And something special happened because God met her. That was a changing point in her life where Jesus became real for her. And how we hold each other, right? We we fail in holding back the offering of one another, the thing that we need the most, and that is the high priest, Jesus. And we have to offer to one another the great treasure of our faith because Jesus is the perfect high priest who is able to help those who are suffering. Hebrews 4, verse 14 says this Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Like, man, if I I can pick a couple of texts just tattoo on my arm. That'd be one of them, right? Like I need to see that. I need it right here on my eyelids. I need it right here burning into my heart. I love verse 15. I like to retranslate it. Away from the negative into the positive, right? Like, like we don't have a high priest who, who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. What is that saying? We have a high priest who does sympathize with our weaknesses. How many of you are very aware of your weaknesses? I think our hands would start going up, hopefully. We try to hide our weaknesses. We try to battle through our weaknesses. We try to, maybe, you know, the world's method of just positive thinking out of our weaknesses, right? We, we're afraid of our weaknesses being exposed. But it's actually in our weakness where our high priest meets us and transforms them and brings his strength in. He brings help in our weakness. We confess them. We're to cry out to Him in our weakness. He hears us. He understands us. And you know what else? And this is awesome. He's interceding for us. If there's one thing out of all of this that we tend to forget or that I tend to forget, it's the third one. He is interceding for us. Why do we pull away from God and others in our weakness? Why do we turn to to hiding or self-loathing or sometimes you just want some ice cream to make yourself feel better, right? Just indulging, all right, in our weaknesses and in our struggles. Um, Praise the Lord for ice cream, but it isn't the answer. Uh, Our high priest stands ready because he's interceding right now. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. Scripture says, consequently, He Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. So I hear people like talk about, like, what's Jesus doing in heaven? You think He's just kind of hanging out, or you know, and it's just like He always lives to what? To make intercession for who? For us. And I love how Paul puts it in Romans eight. Right? You don't have to turn there, but listen. Romans eight thirty four says this: Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And if that isn't enough, listen to Romans eight twenty six, because he goes on to say, or sorry, before that he had said, likewise that's why the next verse says, all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to His purpose, right? Because how how can it not? Like, He's interceding, the Spirit's interceding, and the Son is interceding. That's incredible that the Son and the Spirit intercede for you. And they intercede perfectly, always according to the will of God, right? Like, we can pray for each other with good intention, but we can miss it, Right? Like I've been on prayer chains over the years and you can get, it's pretty consistently like this person needs a job, this person's sick, pray for healing, pray for this, right? Robbie's laughing, you've been on these, you know, all right? And and those aren't bad things. Like our father loves for us to bring our requests to him, right? But we then tend to pray like, okay, Lord, give so-and-so a job. All right, so Lord, please, please heal so-and-so. But the spirit's working deeper and he knows exactly how to pray. And that's helpful for us, because maybe the prayer is actually, God, in this joblessness, would you break the idolatry of money in this person's life? Would you cause this person to no longer be self-sufficient, but to depend on you for all things? God, would you break apart the vain idolatry that that person has always had in their job and position, that they would find who they are in you? Isn't that a totally different way to pray? Maybe they really just don't need a job for a while, okay? That's, that, that changes how we pray. In the midst of these things, the Spirit knows how to pray, and He's praying perfectly. And the Son of God knows how to pray, and He's praying perfectly. And what's beautiful then is as we pray for one another, and we ask the Lord, Lord, help me, I want to pray according to Your will. Show me, how can I pray for this person, Lord? I'm wrestling. I have a confidence, not in my prayer, but I have a confidence that whatever I pray is entering into a greater prayer. Because the Son of God is there praying. He's interceding for these people. How many of you prayed for Bennett over the last two weeks? It was a beautiful, I love studying this because there were so many times where it's just like, oh Lord, I'm so thankful right now. Lord, as I pray for your comfort for this family, I know that prayer is entering into the Son of God's prayers for Mary Beth, prayers for their family. And that's a great picture. Can you just see when all of us pray as a church, it's like our prayer rises up like incense into the great high priest's prayer on behalf of. And we get to watch God work in confidence because he works as our high priest. He lives to make intercession for his people. What a life-changing truth. So what does this mean for us as we face the realities of our own lives? Well, first, you're never alone in your hurt, your struggles, Your battle's with sin. You're never, ever alone. We tend to feel alone. We tend to feel isolated. We tend to relate to the psalmist, right, that cries out, Oh God, why have you forsaken me? Why does it feel like my prayers are hitting the ceiling? Why do you seem so far away? There's a confidence that says, actually, that I might feel, but my feeling doesn't dictate truth. Because God is present. Because God is near. And because God is interceding. Jesus is interceding for you. You're not ever alone. His spirit is in you and with you. And he is with groanings that cannot be uttered, right? He's praying on behalf of his people. Second is that we don't ever pray alone, right? We aren't alone in our struggles and we don't ever pray alone because there is another interceding. And that is our confidence. Like that gives us a confident hope. In fact, I would change that to say, instead of maybe we don't pray alone, there's a reality that we pray with a confident hope. And, and that's the truth. Have you labored in prayer for situations that you know you can't change, whether it's children or grandchildren or, or those that you love, and you're like, God, they, like, I don't know what to do. I can't do anything. Would you work in this person's life? Would you engage them that they would confess you as Lord There's a confidence that we have that Jesus is interceding for our needs according to his will, and that therefore gives us hope always, because we're never alone as we pray. The third thing, and this is beautiful as a family of God, we are set free to actually love one another. The high priesthood of Jesus sets us free to love one another. Okay, well, how does that? That doesn't necessarily seem connected because one of the great barriers in our relationship towards one another is that we can uh, can live toward one another as if Jesus is not high priest. We live towards one another as if Jesus is not high priest. What do I mean by that? Well, in our relationships with each other, we can make judgments against each other. We can put each other in these boxes. Oh, they're, they're this, and they're like this, and they'll never change. You ever hear anybody ever say that? Oh, they'll just always be like that. Um, or we take offense. Or we take secondhand offense for someone else who's been offended, which often is an even worse offense, right? How might Jesus' high priesthood actually confront all of that? What's the truth? That Jesus is living and interceding for that person and for you. (laughs) And the same grace and mercy that he's shown to you, you're called to show, to love each other. in the confident hope that the same God who is committed to changing you is committed to changing that person that you cannot change. Can you submit to that great truth? And say, Lord, I can't do it. I want to trust you to do it. And if I can do that, then I can love that person because you're interceding and loving them. Could you imagine actually opposing the high priesthood of Jesus by saying, that person will never change. If they're in Christ, they're his. He's interceding for them. The better posture is, Jesus, I want to intercede with you in your intercession for them. Because you know what they need better than me. And Lord, you know what I need better than me. I want to lay down my hurt. I want to invite you to come and work in me because you are the great high priest. Show me how to love my brothers and sisters that you love and are interceding for. Show me how to intercede with you. Lastly, we're set free to engage one another as royal priests. This is cool, because Jesus is the high priest. But the Apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter 2, verse 9, he says this to the Christians, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We get to proclaim his excellencies as royal priests. Like Adam, royal priest. Melchizedek, the royal priest. Israel was called to a royal priesthood, fulfilled in Jesus, the true royal priest. And when we are in Christ, we are a royal priesthood because we image the one who is the royal priest. And that's something beautiful. We get to be proclaimers of God's truth. We get to lead others to the cross. We get to proclaim what God has proclaimed. You're forgiven, right? In the face of faith and repentance, we get to wash each other with his word. We get to pray for one another and intercede for each other. And we get to image this greater royal priesthood together. We get to engage each other as royal priests. We get to confront sin lovingly, humbly, and again, with truth. And with prayer and with grace, clinging to the one who is strong in the face of our own weaknesses. I want to end reading out of Hebrews 6, a sermon coded in Hebrews. Listen to these words, brothers and sisters. They ring in us as we go from here. Hebrews 6:18. 20 says this, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have a strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the holy place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Brothers and sisters, we have a great high priest, right? Who enters in to our hurts, to our weaknesses, and who transforms, who who comforts through his spirit, by his people, right? Who washes us with truth and who strengthens us and changes us. And we get to live that out before one another. What a great hope and anchor that is before us in Jesus, our high priest. May we walk in awareness of this great truth, right? As we pray and as we love and as we live this faith that we profess. Let's pray. Thank you lord thank you thank you for your help that was heavy your high priesthood is so great i feel like we have just touched it scratched it lord there's so much for us to grow in and to experience in you our great god father son and holy spirit the confidence that we have because of your high priesthood jesus that you do cleanse us of all of our sin Right? Again and again, you forgive, you bless, you transform us. Lord, would you use us even in the midst of the broken places in the lives of those around us, even in our own lives and the lives of others? Lord, as our great priest, would you bind up those broken places, the bruised reed you will not break, right? a smoldering wick you don't extinguish, you are gentle with the weak, and yet it's there, you are strong. May we cling to you and trust you and proclaim you faithfully. Blessed be your name. Amen.